Hi, I'm Susan Shatter, the president of the National Academy. Welcome to the review panel. Now in its fourth year, a collaboration between the National Academy and Art Critical, slash David Cohn. The, the funding for the review panels provided by Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation, the Daedalus Foundation, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and the New York State Council on the Arts. I'd also very much like to thank Christine Widmer, our uh, Department of Education, and our sound engineer, Graeme White, who tonight has a stand-in named Neil. But the, the programs are taped, and so that's an important thank you. Now I want to introduce you to David Cohn. David is art critic and contributing editor at the New York Sun, and he is, will be working, and he's also editor and publisher of Art Critical, Dot com, and that's where you find the taped panels if you want to listen to them later. And then he is also gallery director at the New York Studio School. David will introduce tonight's critics and act as moderator and critic. Take Wonderful. away, David. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Susan, and to the National Academy for, for hosting this series. It's uh, uh, immodest of me, uh, the instigator, to describe it as an institution, but it's uh, certainly by the number of familiar faces one sees uh, month to month, uh, at least something of a club. So uh, welcome, welcome if this is your first time. Is it, do indeed put your hands up if this is your first uh, uh, time at the review panel. Wonderful. Extraordinary that one always looks at the crowd and feels, ah, it's, it's the same old club. And then you ask who's new, and half the hands go up. So uh, uh, it's great. So for the benefit of those who are uh, first-timers, and in fact, uh, two of my uh, guests this evening are first-timers, um, I shall just have a quick reminder and run through of the protocol. Uh, we're reviewing four exhibitions, current shows, that... Uh, have been announced in advance in New York uh, galleries. Uh, we'll do a little PowerPoint presentation as a visual reminder of the show that hopefully most of us have managed to see. And uh, before each discussion, we'll look at a couple of shows that way and review them uh, among ourselves here on the panel, and then uh, allow some time after each pair of shows that we look at for the uh, patient audience to let off steam and uh, share their views and probe us if they feel we are failing to address the central issue of what these shows suggest. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, my panel this evening from uh, my far left, Stephen Main is an, an artist, curator, and critic uh, based in Brooklyn, New York. As a critic, he's uh, seen regularly in the pages of Art in America and the New York Sun. Uh, as a curator, he was responsible for the photograph at, as canvas at the Aldrich Museum, Aldrich Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut, um, a, a couple of years back, last year actually. And he's currently working on projects at the Frederica Taylor Gallery 
and the Open Gallery in Huntington, New York. Um, and as a painter, he was last seen uh, in a group show at Sideshow Gallery in Williamsburg and has shown more frequently at Metaphor. At Metaphor, that's right. Excellent. Uh, Dory Ashton, one of the deans of American art criticism. Um, she's uh, uh, known, I'm sure, to all of us from numerous uh, uh, publications, books, articles in, in, in many of the leading magazines from you know, quite some way back. She is uh, the author of, of books including uh, The New York School, A Cultural Reckoning, and About Rothko, among other titles, and she is a professor at the Cooper Union. And finally, Joshua Mack, um, a, a, con a commentator on the art scene in a variety of publications, uh, known to us most these days as a regular uh, contributor to Time Out New York and to a more international readership for his writings in Art Review magazine, uh, based in the UK. Um, for some years in the past, uh, Joshua was, was to be seen uh, in Modern Painters magazine. Uh, Joshua was first known to me as a collector. He very generously lent an important uh, work uh, to a, an exhibition I was curating um, at the studio school several years ago now. I was delighted to start seeing his name as a commentator. So ladies and gentlemen, that's your panel. Please welcome them. First of the shows we're looking at, which is Tabaimo at James Cohan Gallery. Oh, yes, there's one more, the rather haunting image of the tortoise trying to escape from the uh, Turkish-style um, urinal or whatever. Uh, and um, <coughs> while, perhaps rather cruelly, this woman was flushing continuously so that the poor creature couldn't <coughs> gain traction on the ceramic. But now the <laughs> description is erring in on the side of criticism, so I shall <laughs> desist. That's the traditional Japanese-style toilet. Traditional Japanese-style Japanese toilet. toilet, OK. We, in, in Europe, we call them Turkish loos, yeah. which is perhaps not kind to the Turks, but... Uh, <laughs> somehow make the point that one, one is not obviously, well, we won't go into the details of uh, <laughs> Lou design. I think we can uh, get the drift there. Um, so Joshua, as you've, as you've volunteered some information on, on Japanese toilets, let's, let's, let's plumb your depths of knowledge on, on Japanese woodcut and Japanese animation. Um, interesting collision, isn't it, of the, of the ancient and the modern in, in, in a decision Perhaps in a way, funnily enough, not a bit unlike uh, the, uh, an artist we discussed in, the, in a previous recent review panel, um, William Kentridge, um, bringing uh, a very classical, traditional uh, medium uh, to bear with um, a quintessentially contemporary um, um, uh, uh, medium. Uh, what, what does this, how, 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 how for you does the uh, mix of mediums gel, ancient and modern? Well, I think it's important to realize that the yukiyoi, the, the Japanese prints, were uh, kind of um, widely produced, uh, widely produced objects that 
were meant to reflect the the life of of people in Edo Japan. So in looking back to it, I think that she's commenting, um, using them to comment on contemporary Japan, to look at the realities of contemporary Japan, and to talk about a collision between tradition and Japanese culture and its continuity and the, as it abuts against the increasing both westernization and the increasing affluence of the, the, the country so that whereas young people are now you know, really kind of chafing at the bit uh, within Japan. So I think it's, it's in a way it's almost like Carol Walker's going back to silhouettes which of course is loaded for Americans and has all sorts of associations in terms of our romanticism and nostalgia for the 19th century, but also a way that, that people in the 19th century romanticized and memorialized, and she's really using that reference to strip away at a reality that's underneath it. And I think that Tabaimo is doing something very much the same in, in this video and then in, in the, actually the video that she had, uh, this is her second show, at Jim Cohan, and she was in a show at the Walker Art Center, oh, it could be six, seven years ago, with again mm -hmm. another terrific video, again that was based on, on uh, animation with woodcuts. Yes. I think that's how they function for her. Dory, did you find that the narrative uh, compelling? It was, it was, it was quite weird goings on, weren't there, with, uh, with Taba Imo's uh, narrative? Uh, how, how, did it, how did that fit with your? Impressions of well, it. I was reminded of myself of being in Tokyo and watching people uh, in the subway carefully deposit what they read, which were comic novels. All, all that uh, businessmen, students, they all, and they would very nicely put them down for the next person to pick them up. And th this, I believe, has something to do with Tabaimo's sat satirical. Uh, look at her own culture. There are a lot of things in her work that really, I believe, only a Japanese would get the sarcasm or the witty, witty uh, critique. So, uh, you know, the the commentary on ukiyo-e I think is is really uh, minimal in that. And the the other work that interested me, the haunted house. Is, if you've ever been in Tokyo. Mm. Uh, all those houses are haunted, and they're all there's absolute. It's chaotic, totally chaotic. And she did capture that. I, I admired how she captured the chaos of private life in this impossible city. Mm. Mm. Stephen, did, did you did you feel that her vision was somewhat? Um, did you did you catch this? Did you sense that her vision was? Um, uh, ironic and uh, light, or did you f feel there's a, 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 a sort of existential darkness in her? her well, the latter. I mean, it's, it's very dark stuff, but I want to pick up on uh, one of Dory's, Dory's main point, which is the, the way the work does or does not translate from Japan to, uh, uh, to our, our culture. I mean, the, the, uh, there are several, even while I sense the kind of uh, um, uh, you know, a, a, a darkness at its heart and a genuine suspense. I thought, um, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not uh, 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 necessarily a fan of animation per se. But I, I really, uh, this thing was as affecting as uh, really any any short form animation I've seen in, in quite a long time. But I was I was at a point where 
for example, the, the detail of the, of the uh, moths, I think you said butterflies uh, mm -hmm. that are equipped with cameras or the function as cameras, um, really uh, totally surreal to, to, to my, um, uh, surreal to me until I was, I was told actually by one of my students who's a young Japanese woman that in fact there's an epidemic of, of uh, digital camera um, uh, women's bathrooms in particular being infiltrated, maybe you know about this, d digital cameras and, and, and uh, much of it being fed to the, to the internet um, apparently. So th the idea of the voyeuristic idea, which <laughs> is very strong in the, in the haunted house as well, yes, well that's is a, is a, it crosses cultures, but, but I'm, I'm really interested in, uh, in um, uh, this kind of cultural specifics that, that don't translate. Well, do you, Joshua, did you sense um, any? I mean, the, the, I mean, it's hard to know what one is missing. In, in a, in, but did you feel that perhaps uh, we in the West are getting a um, that, that, that plenty is lost in translation, or did you think that that, that she's found something universal? I, I certainly think she's found something universal. I mean, I'm certainly not a woman, and I can't speak to what it's like to be uh, on the, the, the other side of, of what and certainly here continues to be quite a sexist society. I think that it's very clear that the women in the bathroom are, um, you know, there, there's one is actually cutting herself. Um, the other is one is, is, standing, is standing naked, or actually she has on her panties. Um, the other one and is uh, yes, yeah, and the other, and I think I think the flushing of the um, of the tortoise does refer to something that's actually quite culturally specific. Apparently, p women's restrooms in Japan have a button by the toilet that mimics the sound of flushing, because women, when they would use the public convenience, would flush the toilet to mask the sound of their urination and their defecation. So in order to save water, the, um, <laughs> the, the, the public authorities install these buttons. So I've read, I've not used, um, <laughs> I've not used women's loos in Japan. Um, and I mean, Japanese toilets are exceedingly advanced. I mean, they, are, they have a bidet function and they will blow dry your backside. So this might be a bit, um, some of this might be lost on those who you know, don't, don't have these nuances. I don't have them all. That said, I'm not really sure, and it's a question, the contemporary art audience in Tokyo is so small that I think that this, this is work that, um, I don't want to say is made for an international public, but I do think that um, the, the artist does have a broader, uh, a broader audience in mind, and I do think that she is 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 successful in communicating certain issues that are somewhat you know universal. Yes, yes. Yeah. Although obviously there's a disagreement. No, uh, no. I, I think um, I think any any sensitive work of art made in any place is going to have by by an individual is going to have certain cultural, local things happening in it that, that um, uh, provide for possible nuance and, and uh, further, further research. But um, a successful work of art is going to, is going to at, a, at a certain level, certain 
um, it's, it's definitely going to transcend such cultural differences, and I think this work does. I mean, it's uh, it's powerful, it's intriguing, it's uh, it, it for me it compelled uh, a repeat visit and and rewarded it with this, with, with things I hadn't noticed the first time round. Um, but yes, it's a very quirky, surreal um, sense of sensibility. Uh, it can be construed as humour, but it's also very as dark as, as, as Stephen uh, acknowledges the sort of uh, the cruelty to, to self and and other in the uh, public convenience piece. Um, any other further th any further thoughts, Dory, that uh, or Stephen? Um, is there a distributor in New York for those? Toilets? I'm, I'm curious now. It might be. I'm not sure. It might be possible. I'm going to email you on that. Um, the the haunted house video. Speaking of this, all this uh, that we're talking about, um, uh, how uh, you know are the culturally the cultural specifics that are embedded in these videos. There's a apparently the a class of uh, sort of a social phenomenon. Um, in Japan now for the last 10 years or so of uh, 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 young, mostly men, the estimates are that there's something like a million of them who've uh, withdrawn from mm -hmm. society in, in typically in their parents' house, which is not in itself unusual, but um, uh, and, the, and the, the word that is being used to describe it is uh, hikikomori, hikikomarai, um, which translates as withdrawal, and uh, 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 I'm told that uh, a modern Japanese person w watching the haunted house video, uh, immediately that telescope, that spy camera, um, puts the uh, puts the viewer in the position of one of these hokikomori, right? Um, uh, looking out uh, stealthily out of out of their mm -hmm. out of their people who often stay in bed or or at least in in a room. Uh, yeah, there was a big article in the Sunday Times a few uh, last year, I think, about. Right. This phenomenon. I, I, it's curious, though, whenever we have a discussion here on um, an artist from as far afield as Japan, say, or when we've discussed Iranian artists or whatever, it does become sort of an exercise in anth cultural anthropology, and mm -hmm. we become very uh, focused on uh, Japan as, as if somehow uh, Taba Imo is going to be um, a straightforward representative of contemporary Japan, but clearly she's a very eccentric artist. She'd be eccentric wherever she is, and um, not to wrap any knuckles or anything. But I, I think I think we should. Um, I mean, that's a that's. A, I mean, I'm Stephen. That's an interesting way in. But um, I wonder if if we can think about the actual um, way way these pieces are made uh, uh, as as we would probably if if this was. Um, an American artist, or you mean like as a theater piece, uh, the the interaction of characters, and yes. this one enters and the other one exits, and, and that sort of thing. The collision of languages, or the the fusion of languages. I don't um, s I, I don't see the use of the ukiyo-e tradition as as um, you know the most interesting the most interesting cultural leap here. I mean, to me, it's it's almost like you know made for mm -hmm. the American market or made for the because that's what Westerners know about. Uh -huh. About Japanese culture, you know, it's sort of a re very easily recognized, mm -hmm. uh, skillfully done, but a very easily recognized um, kind of uh, um, <coughs> conceit, you know. 
Yeah. So I, I like the digging, David. I like getting in there and 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 uh, yeah. googling, you know, spy cam Japan Japanese toilet and seeing what I come up with. I, to me, that's it's a free world ish. Uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> we won't report you to the uh, authorities. Actually, when I was they first know already, I'm sure. When I was when I was first in Tokyo, I was very impressed. I took a, a piping hot shower and, uh, and 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 looked towards the mirror and suddenly noticed. My reflection, and it was the first time I'd ever encountered a, a heated mirror that um, uh, allows for a, a small area to remain crisp and dry so you can take a shave even when the room has steamed up. So we've all had experiences of Japan and its uh, <laughs> sensitive technology. I'm not sure we're quite really penetrating Tabaimo, but um, Dory made a valid suggestion and in, 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 whispered a valid suggestion in my ear and asked if. I should ask if there's any Japanese present who might be able to offer any specific um, insights that, that we may be missing, but uh, they don't have to be Japanese, they can be just Japophonic, Japophone. Uh, yes, Miriam? I'm not Japanese, but I have a question. In one of the episodes in that movie, uh, in the front uh, screening on the three walls, not only was there a tortoise, but there was a baby. Baby, yes. Now that seems worthy of... Yes, the baby is delivered From nostrally. Uh, is, that, is, that a, is that a valid that verb? Uh, or much, I should imagine. Uh, a baby that's delivered through the nose and then placed on top of a tortoise and flushed down a toilet. If that isn't Freudian, I, I, <laughs> Freud may as well retire. Um, uh, yes. I saw a movie about the architectural trends in Tokyo mm -hmm. in terms of space, the lack of space, and the part of it deals with uh, escape from voyeurism. Mm -hmm. And they talk to uh, there is a lot of talk about pods, of course, mm -hmm. and about pods uh, and about a love. Uh, rooms to escape the, fa the small family, crowded family, a living space, mm. and they, they rent rooms for a couple who are owners or living in the apartments to go and have some privacy. Right, okay. And everything is the kind of, a, yeah. a whole culture yes. of this. Of, of escape and discretion and voyeurism, okay. Uh, um, Naomi, can you be persuaded? No? Well, no. Okay, look. The tortoise is sort of very legendary mythological figure. Um, there's probably Japanese people in this room that know a lot more than I do. I, I just know a little bit from what my mother had mentioned to me. But there's a, the old mythology of Momotaro. I don't know if that's sort of... Uh, is applicable to this certain case, but Momotaro is a story about um, this boy that lived under the sea with the tortoise. Uh, he, I'm not sure what the whole legend is about, but it might have something to do with the flushing of the turtle and right. such. Excellent. So I hope that's a, some help. Noguchi did a number of sculptures on Momotaro. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. There's also that stunning image where the, um, the woman drops her cell phone into yes. the toilet and then she dives in after it. Yeah. And um, 
I mean, I think if, if, if we take it away from Japan, I think that there are certain universal things that are in there. I mean, she is talking about anonymity within a city. She is talking about what you say and you don't say in terms of what you see and social dysfunction. She is talking about the fact that in in one apartment on one floor, a family is eating, and next door, a man is beating his wife to death. She is, I think, talking about the way that we become attached to our gadgets, the way that we lose track of ourselves because of consumerism. These are issues that are at play in this country as well. Yes. And and I think that... that uh, she, no. Great. Thank you. I think we'll move on now to our next exhibition, um, which is Julian Hatton at Elizabeth Harris Gallery. We have quite a painting-rich panel this, uh, this week, uh, menu. Dori, how did you respond to Hatton's work, and in particular the scale? I think that they looked wonderful in the slides, but in their presence, to me, they didn't look so wonderful. And you're talking about the scale. Uh, there isn't much scale in those paintings. Uh, th these, there are elements which I'm told refer to landscape or impressions. And in a few of them, there are two or three different perspectives combined. But there was no breathing space in those forms. And uh, well, they weren't forms. They were shapes but not forms. So I found, I found that uh, wanting uh, in terms, you say, of painting. And my interest is very deeply in painting, and I found it wanting. Well, that's wonderful. No pulling of punches. That's what we like on the review panel. <laughs> um, the, the, the size of the works is certainly uniform, but uh, Stephen, would you not agree that there's some diversity of scale within, in the sense of the, the possibility of space depicted, or, or do you share? Um, well, you mean in the sense that uh, the, this kind of landscape well, whether space you, whether is stuffed you, into a square. I, yes. I'm, I like them a bit more than Dory did, I think, but what I don't like about them is that they're likable. Uh, ultimately not particularly challenging, I thought. Um, he does a number, this painter does a number of things like excruciatingly well, you know. I mean, uh, uh, beautiful glazes and bo against body color. He's balancing warm and cool chroma. He's doing all the right kind of painterly moves uh, uh, with this kind of space that he wants to be elastic. He wants to uh, create this kind of uh, forward-tipping sensation of space, and sometimes he does, but he's always got that horizon line up there, shutting everything down again. To me, they were very predictable paintings. I wasn't surprised by any of them. I thought they were, they bolstered one another by being in a group and being all the same size. But I think if I were to have encountered one of them by itself, I wouldn't have stopped. And I have to say, and I think this is fair, because they're hanging in the next room, but they really suffer in comparison to the rest of that gallery's you know, fabulous program. I mean, you go into the back room and there's Thornton Willis right there, Carolina Parlato, Scott Richter. These are very, very uh, you know, constantly self-assured painters. Yes. And I thought that uh, it was an unfortunate um, opportunity to, to uh, contrast what uh, Julian Hatton is doing as against those other much more 
his sensibility is much more um, romantic, isn't it, than most of Harris's stable, as one sees in that group show at the back. I mean, there are artists like Parlato and um, uh, it's a brittle, yeah, yeah. synthetic colour, very much more modernist feeling. Uh, uh, Joshua, did you, do you share my feeling that this is a very romantic painter? Yes, I do. I think it's very much about visual beauty. I mean, it's a very conservative painting. I think that it's probably the most challenging thing to do to engage yourself with this tradition of abstraction on a small scale, this interplay between landscape or figuration and abstraction. I mean, Thomas Moskowski has been doing it for years. Bill Jensen has been doing it for years. It in many ways goes back to Arthur Dove. Um, I think that it's, 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 it's a very tough idiom to work in, but I found them really visually satisfying, and this is not the type of painting that I normally respond to. Um, I, I really found them very accomplished. I felt that he held an enormous number of, of, of spatial dynamics and, and paint dynamics together in ways that at least I found really quite visually um, satisfying. They maybe air for some on the side of, 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 of lyricism, but um, I think that that's, I, I, I thought they were very authentic and heartfelt. Mm. I really did. did um, mm. Dory, your, your objections sound um, uh, quite strictly formal. Did, were you, despite, I mean, were you able to sense any of that authenticity that Joshua identifies? Did, did, the, did the paintings, do you have um, uh, a, a feeling that, I mean, obviously you didn't like them, but did, could you... Um, I think the root of that word authenticity comes from by, by the hand, so of course they're authentic, they're by the hand, <laughs> I mean, if that's what yes. you're talking about. And I wouldn't doubt the artist's good faith, no. What are you asking me, actually? <laughs> I'm asking you if, if you think he could improve. I mean, is... is, is... I'm not a teacher, uh, and um, it's been a long time since I was an art student, and I, that isn't how I think we should be talking at yes. all. Well, if, if, if there's a problem with the work, it's um, you, you've, uh, it, one, 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 one want to pinpoint um, right. what it is yes. that's the problem. Right. Um, well, as I said, the problem I found was the, the insufficiency of the descriptive shapes in terms of creating space. Painting is about space as well as drawing and color and everything else. And I didn't feel those spaces. I didn't feel them intuitively and intellectually, certainly not. I didn't feel, uh, and occasionally uh, a very brave move, for instance, there was this violet shapeless thing running through one canvas, but it had no relation to what was around it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. May I jump in here? Please. Uh, the comparison to Jensen is interesting, and I, um, uh, Unlike uh, what Jensen does when he's when he's hitting on all eight cylinders, the, uh, he, Hatton doesn't leave things alone. To me, uh, they have uh, very often they have the life tweaked out of them. That's what I really what I really object to about them. There's one called Oil and Water, um, which is um, 
it's 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 like he it's like he like Jensen sometimes you get the sense that he said you know the hell with it and walked away from it. There's a some kind of like a little pencil doodad in the bottom that's not really integrated. Uh, there's a very clumsy kind of wiping out. Do you wonder you know uh, um, why and uh, for what reason he you know he left it off there? Some kind of um, uh, scraggly kind of red or red orange lines, linear kind of stuff. It's 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 the nastiest painting, and it's the one that I, good nasty, and it's the one that I that I responded to, f you know, for that reason. He's 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 good. He knows what he's doing, and I think therein lies some of the problem. Mm -hmm. I I I tend to find them a little too polite, and that's uh, generally definitely in agreement with uh, Stephen there. But I'm surprised that. Um, I'm surprised at Dory's formal um, dismissal of them because they seemed, I mean, Stephen and I are saying they're almost too accomplished. I mean, they seem very mid-20th century and very almost very English-looking to me. I mean, that reminded me a lot of Graham Sutherland and, and artists um, with a kind of knotty, gnarled um, romantic sensibility that's um, about trying to establish some sense of uh, relationship to a place. Um, Dory's um, complaint about space seems to me that, that I mean, their, their charm their, and their power, in fact, will come from that tension between um, the possibility of depicting deep space and the reality of a, a, a picture plane. I mean, that's the, the modernist project in a way. And um, so I'm, I'm surprised, um, I'm surprised to hear that there is no successful uh, <coughs> sense of, of space and scale. The, the one thing that I found the strongest quality of the work was precisely that from one canvas to another, I had a sense of very different uh, relationship to, to space. Some, the forms were very up close, and others, there was a possibility of a, a wide vista. So um, Everything in balance, a little bit of everything. Yeah, right. I, that's, that's the fault. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the drawback um, of um, a hedging of bets. I mean, I, right. Joshua's point fascinates me because the relationship to Dove and then bringing in, say, Noskowski. So it's true that both Noskowski and Hatton would look back to Dove, but I can't think of two painters whose ambition uh, level could be more contrastive than Noskowski. Uh, these are not, I mean, <coughs> no, no, are I'm, we looking at these in terms of are they earth-shattering works, are they wildly ambitious works? Yes. Not necessarily. Are they interesting? Are they feeding into a debate um, and, and issues that, that continually come around about abstraction and yeah. how abstraction can or can't move forward? Um, at this moment, I think that in that way, there is a thought-provoking element to them. Um, I mean, I have a certain problem with Noskowski, who may be a more ambitious painter, but I tend to find for all of the variety in his work, a certain sameness and a certain repetition that seems to be this issue that everybody on the panel is is sniffing around. Right, right. Here, uh, and, 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 and it's one of the big problems. Um, and it's something that also Jensen suffers from, whether he's a better artist than Hatton or not, when he's not on all eight cylinders. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Well, yeah, and, I, agree with I mean, that. and 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 this this is this, this is maybe the core issue. It, you know, it's something always kind of bothersome in but, a way about abstraction. But do you do you but, think that Hatton is moving the moving the the dialogue of about surrounding abstraction forward? We were just saying that it's he's sort of a backward-looking painter in a way. I'm I'm not sure that he is moving the dialogue forward. Very few painters move oh, the dialogue yeah. forward. But you, you, um, some of us would think that Noskalski, for instance, does. So, um, what is this? Are you proclaiming progress in art all of a sudden? <laughs> I, I don't understand at all that that the way you're talking about it. Well, I'd rather look at something that the likes of which I've never seen before. Novelty is progress enough for some of us. <laughs> but also, one doesn't have to have a grandiose notion of progress in culture to nonetheless think that people working within a very specific discourse can be in dialogue with the past and each other in a way that edges things in a direction that could be construed as forward. Or just elsewhere. Well, elsewhere is good enough. Right, you, have to, you have to look elsewhere. With a really broad brush, you have to look backward to move forward. Exactly. Yeah. But one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. Well, uh, I mean, Eliot's notion was that, that progress occurs when there's a, um, you know, a radical remaking of what's happened in the past. It's likely that, that Hatton doesn't really care about progress in painting. Mm -hmm. it's know, an, it's he's painting for himself. I hope so. Yeah. And, um, and so we have to acknowledge that. Um, and... and uh, Bully for you. <laughs> thank you, dear. <laughs> Okay, well, Hatton has had the effect of actually generating a debate about progress in the past, so the work certainly has provided, is a conversation piece of nothing else. And let's hear perhaps from the audience at this stage. Uh, we've rather, uh, you're, you're, we, we did take comments spontaneously earlier on uh, Taba Imo, but don't feel restrained from bringing her back if you had something more of a critical nature to say rather than uh, uh, Japanese sociological and anthropological nature, um, or else uh, if, if perhaps somebody would like to uh, uh, launch a defense of uh, the progressive in Julian Hatton, and they're very welcome to do so. Um, and do wait, if you would, for the mic, just although even if we can hear you, we'd love to, love to record you as well. So pass that gentleman the mic. Uh, it seemed like the, cons the discussion around Toba Imo uh, re revolved a lot around cultural consideration. So mm -hmm. I would be, whereas the discussion around uh, Hatton was mainly around uh, formal and concerns around technique, so I'd be curious to hear the panelists comment on the forms and techniques of Toba Imo. And we didn't get, really get a chance to discuss uh, the drawings, so I'd be curious to hear what the panelists have to say on that. Well, it was like getting blood out of a stone to try to get the panel to engage with the form, but thank you for having another prod. Um, I, we, we did feel, I think, collectively, that um, the, the ukiyo-e was, uh, while, while, while rich and nicely handled and, and likable, not necessarily uh, a sort of riveting cultural deconstruction. I think that sort of speaks fairly for the panel. On, on what would, I think, be the central technical, formal consideration. 
Another one that we didn't touch on that we might uh, is uh, might have uh, is uh, the construction of the stage itself. I mean, we, the narrative for me was the was the real uh, draw, but but uh, I, I think there's a, a problem with that with that perspectively constructed stage. I don't I don't um, you know we could kick that around a little. I don't think it works particularly well, and I don't really see the function of it. But it seemed to be it seemed to be there for you to walk into and and. I think the press release called it interactive, and it was about as stay away from this as mm -hmm. you see you know, anywhere. So I didn't, I didn't feel invited to interact with it. But I also didn't understand um, uh, really how it was an improvement over, for example, um, a, a, a three-channel video. Mm. On, on a surrounding wall or something. I didn't, I didn't understand it. I liked its sort of flimsy, uh, handmade, improvised sense. I've seen enough uh, high-tech, three-channel, multi-size, sort of flat screens in my time. And I, I kind of like the way the projection slightly misregistered occasionally with the wall and, and that, that it was making a sense of actually being a, a tangible physical space um, um, so I was okay with that actually mm -hmm. um, um, as to the drawings in the front room I thought they were cute and inconsequential and <laughs> was rather surprised that in, in terms of the uh, the ambition and the uh, confidence of the video pieces that they uh, should be included and I couldn't see any point at all to punching holes in the wall and it seemed like an expensive way to backlight for rather slight drawings. But would any of the panel disagree on that? <laughs> totally agree. Okay. Um, audience, Hatton. We, we've had quite a spirited discussion there on Julian Hatton. I'm sure that must be somebody who feels that we're missing the radicality or we've underplayed the conservatism or that perhaps radical slash conservative is an utter irrelevance and that um, painting is about something else. So. Anyone want to say anything about Julian Hatton? Yes, uh, lady at the back. I, I think you all really um, <clears throat> slammed um, the work because I felt that they were big li little paintings. The horizon absolutely didn't bother me from an abstract position because that's how we see the world. Um, the use of different colors, I think, in the paintings gave different emotionality and expression, and that's what good abstract painting's about. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's my or, or good realist painting. Yes. Great. Okay. Well, let's move on to some other painting and see. Hatton may well come back as we as we consider um, our second pair of artists, uh, Byron Kim and then Alex Ross, Alexander Ross. So Stephen. Um, <laughs> David. Paintings that have a strong conceptual underpinning, perhaps we need to or want to know or be told. Um, perhaps the titles intrigue us to discover uh, uh, what determines the structure, the form of these works. Or are we happy just to um, let that stand by the wayside and, and, and enjoy these as formal abstract resolutions. 
How, how did you get your bearings? Well, what I, to what these? I, what I <clears throat> like about uh, Byron Kim's work, first of all, is that he is really a very mercurial artist. You never really know what you're going to get into when you go into a when you go into a Byron Kim show. I think the last show there was um, included photographic uh, assemblage and a kinetic sculpture, if I remember right. You get the sense that. Uh, this is an artist who is making his way forward uh, in the world. It, it has a very contemplative or reflective, meditative kind of uh, uh, feeling about it for that reason. Um, you get the sense that uh, both in, in terms of how he makes his way through the world, in terms of urban life, uh, the world of buildings and taxi cabs and public spaces, and also in terms of his relationship to the post-war, uh, the, uh, the flow of post-war art, uh, progress again, sorry. Um, he's not, though, what I like about it is he's not trying to convince us that he's got everything figured out. Uh, he's generous enough to offer conspicuous clues with titles, and in this case with actual, you know, notes, uh, which are very helpful. And I think that, I think that for me, what I appreciate about it is that about his project generally, and these paintings in particular, is his, is his concern with the idea of failure. <clears throat> um, uh, the idea that he can use a basically a failed photograph of uh, a canonical, it might be argued, sculpture, the Irwin disc, uh, and in, in addressing the, the camera's failure at capturing Irwin's, Irwin's uh, feat of dematerializing, optically dematerializing the art object, uh, you know, Byron grabs onto this photograph and, and in effect rematerializes re the, the object through this conduit of a bad photograph. So uh, I, I, um, I, I appreciate his, his uh, approach to failure and I, even to the point where I think possibly to provide the visitor with, with written notes about what he's up to is a tacit admission that, you know, these may not, these may be failed, failed paintings, you know, which is an uh, incredibly generous and, and nervy thing to do. Edgy. Dory. I don't use that word, but. Um. <laughs> um, scale and shape and form were problems with uh, Hatton. Did you, did you find yourself finding any satisfying form and sense of scale in these paintings. Well, I'm not going to talk about Byron Kim in those terms. I was very much interested in that exhibition. This guy is, has interesting ideas, and I'm interested in ideas also, beside painting. So while I feel that what he paints are phantoms, I like phantoms, and what he says to the audience, me, is, you go figure this out, I'll give you a few hints. And I did think, I really liked the, the way he uh, recapitulated, making the assumption that we would know, and I do know, I did see Robert Irwin's first show of the discs in New York City. So he's addressing somebody like me in one way. Uh, I know his references. So looking at the two they, as they were separated, and one was behind your back, uh, that was a very, I think, very interesting way to say this is more interesting than you think, than you might think. And of course, they were painted in a rather reticent and deliberately unsensuous way, so that Irwin's 
very sensuous light forms were completely and sadly uh, diminished in those paintings, which I found very good. As for the UN building, um, those paintings are, are witty. Uh, he's, he's, uh, I think he's a belated suprematist, a kind of disappointed Malevich or something. <laughs> and, and that interests me too. The guy is interesting. The fact that you could read, I actually did. I don't always, when I get in, I picked up the, the giveaway that they give away. And I did read what he had to say about what he was doing. So there, it's a three-pronged approach he's making to me, witty, and to some degree, I would say, sarcastic as well. Hmm. Sarcastic, strong. I, I found them ironic, um, but that um, this, perhaps I was, the irony was modest enough that I was able to step around it and just enjoy these in a way as, as, as rather, I, 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 I mean, I don't want to insult a good, strong conceptualist by saying that his paintings are pretty, but I enjoyed them for their formal rigor. But that's the, the two are not mutually exclusive. I mean, perhaps it speaks to the richness of the work that it can be interpreted, enjoyed on these different levels. And then the issue becomes, how does the conceptual baggage, the historical baggage, the visual effect of the paintings work together to either increase your visual awareness, to increase your understanding of the paintings, to increase your understanding of his ideas. Ideally, these things should work in, in, in tandem. In tandem. Mm -hmm. And, and then hopefully that enriches what you learn from them, either on an intellectual level or an aesthetic level, or, or the two mixed together. Uh, they are in some in way intimately linked. And, and was that link a rich, organic one for you then? Um, in, the two in, the, in the two Robert Irwin paintings, yes. Very much so. Less so in, in, in the others. That's funny, because it, it may be that um, one's uh, rapport with a, a Byron Kim will, to some extent, be predicated on uh, the external rapport or relationship you have with the work on which it riffs. Because for me, the Hopper painting was actually the strongest and richest and most resonant. I thought the colors sang in a particular way. And it had me wanting to go back and have a look again at Hopper, which has to be the best compliment one can pay to a work which has some kind of relationship, be it ironic or reverential or both, uh, towards a painting of the past. Um, anyone, uh, Dory, what did you think of the one that, that was taken off from, from, from Hopper? Um, uh, well, when I looked at it, I didn't know it was supposed to have something to do with Edward Hopper. And to me, it doesn't have anything to do with Edward Hopper, but I liked the painting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, if you don't think of it in relation to a hopper room, then the particular palette and the uh, sense of shadow and the, uh, what it might yeah. possibly depict would um, it, it'd be interesting. You were a little uh, dismissive when I said to you, uh, how, how, was the fo how was it for you, the form and the color in, in, in uh, Byron Kim, saying, oh, he's an interesting artist. I'm not going to talk about him in those terms. And yet, those are precisely the terms, if one isn't um, reading the program notes, that one would have to engage with, say, the Hopper one. 
Do you see the, the dilemma? Well, you know, I'm very ancient drug delight, and I have to say that secretly, I don't think of myself as an art critic, as you're approaching me on that level. Uh, and I know perfectly well that finally, everyone who stands in front of a painting, whether he or she regards himself as a critic or not, finally it is, I like it or I don't like it. It speaks to me or it doesn't speak to me. And at that final level, you can also say with Mr. Shakespeare, words, 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 words. There's no way we can bridge the gap between spoken, written language and what someone called a painter or a visual artist of any kind is doing. So I don't really want to answer you in those, yes, I mean, I'm here, and I, I guess I shouldn't in some way be here, but. <laughs> We're delighted that you are. Whatever you think of your own credentials, we think they're impeccable. Stephen. I'd like to jump in and talk about this Delacroix shadow yeah. painting, by the way, because this is the one that, uh, there's the anecdote, which, you know, is interesting and everything, but the, it's the one, I think, in the whole group uh, that doesn't refer for me directly to another, another, uh, uh, you know, an autonomous artwork. The, the, uh, the, the two UN building paintings actually remind me very much of, of John McLaughlin, the uh, Southern California. Mm. Um, Good painter. Um, and, like and this the palette and everything yeah. is right right there, and you got to wonder if, if Byron's thinking about that too. And um, <clears throat> I I did I did kind of uh, look at the sun in an empty room and think hmm Hopper because of the way that that particularly the the the, the plane of light on the left side, uh, the way that it reminded me very much of the way Hopper puts patches of of late afternoon sunlight on his on on walls, but <clears throat> the the. Uh, I don't know if this is significant, but the, the work that I responded to, that I respond to most uh, directly and most viscerally is that Delacroix shadow, which uh, um, uh, I was trying to figure out, is it trying to do something optical? Am I supposed to see the yellow as, as receding in space? Is it, is it trying to do some kind of trick like that? But I, I ultimately just came down to the, the crisp kind of frisson of that sharp yellow edge against the wall and the, and the soft edge of the shadow on the vinyl. I just think, you know, in its own, in its own terms, independent of any kind of uh, anecdote, it's uh, just sort of one of these, you know, you turn the corner and there's this beautiful thing. And that, that was, uh, you know, that was enough for me. I, I found that what I was really picking up from Kim, and I had actually just a few days before seeing the show, uh, been in, in Houston, Texas, and the Museum of Fine Arts in their new, lavish uh, Korean wing, uh, with a display of Korean ceramics, they had a Byron Kim commission that uses the same glazes as traditional Korean ceramics. It's a ceramic piece? Yeah, it's not, no, it's a painting. It's, uh, it looks, at first glance, I mean, from a distance, you think it's probably a Bryce Marden from the 60s, and then it's Byron Kim from 2005. So, um, in a way, I find myself enjoying and responding to Kim in similar terms to Marden, who I just mentioned, or McCracken, who you've mentioned. Uh, in a way, sort of purists, uh, minimal artists, but but very much within a painterly minimal, but within a painterly abstract tradition. Um, but 
uh, conceptually, without they're, they're sort of playing a little funny game, aren't they, with that tradition by bringing it back to representation, mm -hmm. showing us a little segment of a hopper or a building on uh, a canonical building, but cropped, and just saying, uh, you know, even the most pure, most hard-edged, most rigorous abstract art is in a way sort of um, uh, life imitating art, uh, drawing us, taking us back to, uh, to representation. And the flip. That and the, flip the most realist thing is in fact has an implicit enormously abstract. Right. So I, I suppose, you know, in, in, in essence, actual eyesight is, I, I mean, it involves a process of abstraction. Yes. That he's getting at. In right. terms of how light is seen, how things change in terms of the light, <laughs> how your mind processes it, how you take, you know, then in representation, how do you take something like light in the Irwin disk? How do you take space and turn it into something set, something that's actually solid, that's material? And, and, and what is the process by which that then happens when, when you actually see something? You know, we have all of these assumptions that underlie the way we look that he's cutting at. Well, the power in the UN, to go back to the UN building paintings, uh, the, the, you know, the palette is, is, is very carefully calibrated. I mean, that, to get that, that atmospheric blue, gray to recede and to kind of recede on one side and kind of cozy up to the other edge of the building on the other side is, uh, um, um, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be really, it's got to be really good. It's got to be really there or, or the painting just doesn't work, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny just talking about the, the wittiness of them to have the, the uptown, the, the view uptown in one room and then the <laughs> view downtown in the back room was pretty hilarious, you know? Yeah. Well, I think there's a consensus there from different yeah. perspectives, uh, a witty, sumptuous show. Let's look at our last show and see if we come to the same conclusion. Alexander Ross, actually a, a two-part <laughs> exhibition um, at... Uh, uh, drawings downtown and uh, collages and paintings at Marian Boski. Our comments will probably focus most strongly on the Boski exhibition. So, you like it or you don't like it, uh, Dory Ashton. On those stark and simple terms, what, what, what about Alex Ross? I don't like it. <laughs> but I, I, I'd be glad to tell you what interested me about it. First of all, I'm interested that a genre like that uh, has a very broad public and many, many people are extremely enthusiastic about his work. I've heard about him before I went to see the show from other people. To me, uh, my associations, alas, are with uh, things like Rube Goldberg, um, certain surrealist uh, works where uh, people did play with photographs and painting together. They're not the best known artists, but if you ever saw a big surrealist show, you'd know what I mean. And uh, curiously, Salvador Dali. Uh, a lot of the vegetal uh, allusions in Ross's work, if you look at some of Dali's drawings, uh, 
around 1933 to five, there's a lot of uh, affinity, let's say. What I thought, uh, um, then I, I was uh, curious uh, about what, what people saw uh, while I was merely seeing uh, these kind of uh, uh, hard things converted into soft things. I had been told that the artist makes plasticine models, and then he photographs the models, and then he photoshops, whatever that is. My students often talk about that. Uh, and you come out with a painting, um, because it is oil paint, I believe, together with other things mixed in. Um, and to me, uh, this smacks of a highly ritualistic procedure. I think it's largely called processing these days, which is an un unfortunate to make a noun process into a verb. Uh, and these ritualistic approaches I've seen in quite a few galleries in Chelsea, where when you do, if you do bother to pick up the handouts, they tell you exactly how the artist starts, what the next step is, and et cetera, et cetera, at length. And you do, I did feel uh, something of that in the work itself. Even if I hadn't been told that, I would have guessed that a lot of uh, technical uh, sleight of hand occurs. And that seems to be, people are interested in technical sleight of hand more than they are interested finally in the fact that it is a painting. As for it being a painting, um, <laughs> I, I think those nice little strokes are pretty boring. You know? And the little bit of off-register uh, coquetry, uh, that's something I've seen before. Great. Well, thank you. I think um, I, I find myself really liking them, but not disagreeing with any uh, moment <laughs> of your analysis. So uh, I think it comes down to, to the, the, the problem of intention. No, not generation, because I'm no, because I'm I agree with you. I often feel no, we will go down there. But um, <laughs> no, definitely no gender, no, no, no generational discrimination on, on this panel. Had an interesting slip of the interesting time. Freudian <laughs> slip. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Wasn't that just okay? But to me, it it comes down to intention because I think that this is this is within the genre of bad painting, that this is, um, I mean, it's, it's uh, highly skilled, but it, there's, a, there's an alienation between uh, this very elaborate process and the kind of result, that, what, what results. And I think that the alienation is the crux of the experience, that um, uh, this is a kind of science fiction um, sensibility. There is something inherently nerdish, both in the way the surfaces look, they're very icky and alienating. And in the sense, and Dory is absolutely right, even if you don't read the press release, you can just somehow sense that some weird process lay behind the labored way in which these images were fabricated. But rather than being <coughs> uh, a downer, they are, as it were, something that, for me, 
energizes this, <coughs> this whole project. Uh, I, 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 to me, an issue here is is uh, is risk, the kind of risk taking that he that he does or does not, uh, you know, engage in in the pain. I, I, I have to say, I've been a, a skeptic, a Alex Ross skeptic until now. Uh, I'm beginning to see the light. I'm beginning to see the humor, uh, particularly with the with the small scale work on paper. Um, I. If, if it's a fair paraphrase, I agree that the big paintings are uh, sort of depressingly competent. Um, they're, they're, uh, there seems to be no um, way that they can come out wrong. The, the, it's a step-by-step -step process. And uh, I began to understand about, that he sort of has a visual pun going on with tactility and with touch. And what brought me to that understanding of the big paintings uh, was the uh, is the smaller work on paper um, more the more the work at, at Boski than the work at David Nolan for some reason the those collages in the front room collages and and hybrid drawings are they seem to be uh, uh, taking a lot of a lot of risks I think they're uh, they're they're uh, engaging with uh, uh, a lot of other funny painters, like uh, Peter Saul came to mind, and um, Carol Dunham, of course. And um, the, there, there's, there's some air in there, and, and I don't know whether he's been doing these all along, and I just haven't seen them. I've only seen the big paintings. Um, to his credit, he's, he seems to have set aside a, a particularly um, egregious um, uh, kind of idiom that he was working in for some time, and a couple of those, I think, appeared in the show at the Whitney called Remote Viewing, and that, that was a kind of a double exposure thing that he had going on where it, it was a very, a very the, on its knees to photography and to the tricks you can do with photography. So he's gotten away from that, and I think that's good. But uh, I do agree that the big paintings are, um, are kind, of just kind of corporate. They're depressingly corporate paintings. Hmm. They know exactly what they're about, whereas the, the, uh, the uh, the other smaller, yeah, corporate, very, very airless and paved. They're they're like paved from end to end, top to bottom. They're weirdly decorative. We're they out. are weirdly decorative. They're what? They're weirdly decorative. There's a certain sameness to them. There's a certain dullness to them. There's a certain repetition to them um, that they become somewhat formulaic. And it's like I look at them. I think, God, he's got everything in there in the kitchen sink. He's got the process. He's got the weird color. He's got the photographs. And he's got you know, the, the drawing versus the photograph. He has the organic versus the artificial, abstraction versus figuration, photography versus drawing. It's like he leaves, you know, it's like every, everything is in there. And the result is somehow uh, slightly ungepotched. And, and it is. I mean, to me, visually, and, and I think that there is a certain kind of, of, of sameness in it. It veers really almost to the, the willfully kitschy in a way that somebody like Neil Jenny, who, you know, kind of was a bad painter, um, you know, that, that, that perhaps in a way that he did, but it's, it's become slightly old at this point. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to argue. I would, I would, I would say no. Actually, if anything, he's opening up a little bit right now, which is why I was kind of more interested in this. I, I, uh, uh, he's in a place now, to his credit, where he can really pull in a lot of different kinds of um, 
influences, continue mm -hmm. to pull them in. Uh, underground Comics, Robert Crumb, Ed Roth, um, um, scientific, you know, microscopic views. I mean, he's, he's kind of touching on a lot of different things. Um, and uh, increasingly, it seems to me, uh, uh, he does have this signature uh, goopy, you know, kind of melting, it's like a quaraseptic, you know, that sort of... I, I, I read it more as like a contour of a... Um, like a contour line on a, like a, a weather map, so that uh, they're so that they're uh, you, ident you you recognize them as being from the studio of Alex Ross and yes. company, but uh, <laughs> uh, presumably, but um, patented, I should think, yes, right. But don't try it yourself. Yes, uh, I think I think he's at an interesting point in in his in in where he's going. I think it's an unlovely surface. I mean, although there are painterly movements, they're not expressive. They are highly conceptual um, uh, maneuvers to create like a contour map of the surface. But what, what, what does intrigue me is the way he gets that really icky sense of the, the, the forms actually sweating or perspiring. Um, it's, it's very, um, uh, it's very um, uh, trompe l'oeil as well as being kind of visceral in its uh, surface. So. Again, that's one of those dichotomies you say he's thrown it all in. It's true. He's, um, he's, he's not shy of his uh, accomplishments. But Without yet synthesizing it, at least as, as I respond to it. Whereas well, someone like Tip Dunham, I, I really feel has. Mm, I, think. I, I think he's keeping alive the tension. He doesn't want the mm -hmm. synthesis. So um, in terms of intention, I'd say that's, that's okay. That's cool. Well... Some, some dissent, an interesting dissent here on the panel about Alexander Ross, and we should hear from the audience on Kim and Ross. So um, any, let's, let's start with Kim. So hold back if you're going to talk on Ross so we get some discipline on what we're looking at. Byron Kim, Lady in Red. Yep, here's um, the mic. Okay. Uh, recently I saw the Robert Irwin disc. That's, it's at MoMA, I think, in the color show. And... It's really, really sensuous, like you said. Um, and I'm, what I want to know is, can you talk more about why you like the completely non-sensuous Byron Kim painting of the very sensuous Robert Irwin disc? I mean, everybody on the panel seemed to really like that they were painted so sort of blandly and sort of you know, non-sensuously. And I'm just interested in really why that is so appealing. If you could, you know, explain that more. Well, it's not like we're going to take the Irwin down and hang the Kim in its place, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, we don't have to choose between the two. Um, I, uh, I, I think it's, uh, you know, very funny uh, that um, uh, the, that that Kim chooses to work through his um, affection for Irwin and for presumably for, for what that uh, moment in history uh, means uh, through, through this kind of degraded um, f photograph with a funny greenish cast to it. I think it, on some level there's got to be an acknowledgement on his part that, you know, uh, we're, we're awash in images, this culture is awash in photographic images, and uh, to, to kind of reclaim something uh, that he loves, let's say, uh, extrapolating now, I assume that he loves the the Irwin because he says he does, 
or gather that he loves the Irwin because he says he does, to kind of reclaim it from uh, and, re and rescue it from the snatches of, uh, you know, bad photography and, and make it, so sort of make it his own again and blow it up. I think in the literature it indicates that it's the same scale. He's blown it back up to the same scale, the same size as the original. Um, it's kind of a, a, an act of uh, archaeology. Mm. On Kim? Yes? Yeah, um, I saw the, one of his first shows years ago at Max Protest, and they were just different tones, flesh tones. And what made that show so wonderful later when I understood, I read a little bit more about him, was that each flesh tone, each tone was a different skin tone. So it was each one had this conceptual, uh, this whole conceptual uh, appeal for me. So there was pink, there was a brown, there was a light brown. It made me look at skin tone again in another way. But at first, when you look at them, they're so minimal. And you're saying, what's this? It's just one color. And I think, as I've seen his show, as you said, each show is a revelation. Each one is different, and, he's, and they are very conceptual pieces as well. And that's why I find them to be a terrific painter. Yeah, that's a great piece. There's a one related to it, uh, and the title is An Address in Wallingford, Connecticut, where, where he grew up. Uh, and it uh, appears to be a minimal painting of pink stripes. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, it's actually, um, he, he um, asked his family, immediate family and extended family and friends to try to recall the color, I think I've got the story right, the color of the, the pink, the particular pink that their kitchen was painted, the house in which he and his siblings grew up. And it's sort of a bell curve, some people get it about right, uh, but it, there's an interesting kind of um, variety in uh, uh, the People's memory, memory, people's memory, yeah, the memory of the memory of the pink, and they spent years in this in this house, and it's not etched in their memory, obviously. Oh, but of course, oh, we won't go there. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's not etched in the same way. Yes. Yeah. But even if it was, they would project. <laughs> they would see the color differently. Well, they're all right. So they're all correct. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and Alexander Ross. Let's let's move on to Ross, uh, gentleman in the front. Do wait for the mic, if you would. <clears throat> uh, I, when you guys were describing Ross and his process, all that, uh, I really agreed with what you were saying. But ultimately, with Ross, what uh, sticks in my mind is it's just a strange, strange subject. And when you're looking at painting in a, in a uh, looking at something positive about Ross, is that uh, I've never seen anything like it. And then, then the process kind of comes along too, that how he arrived to this visual solution. Uh, but that's what sticks in my mind about mm -hmm. it. And that's what, what keeps mm -hmm. me going to look at his work. Yes, it's interesting that we all, in fact, uh, glided over the, the subject. And that's, it's good to be uh, called to task for that. I think perhaps it's because possibly some, most of us actually have seen such forms mm -hmm. in biomorphic surrealism and that it seems to us, perhaps, if I can speak for all of us, maybe as much a riff on uh, a well-known, uh, well-trodden uh, path in mid-century painting than it is in the forms of things unknown, in Shakespeare's phrase. But um, we should 
no doubt, you know, acknowledge that these are weirdly compelling forms and that would take people back to them. Um, Mike, over here, please. Um, you discuss the purposes of each of the other artists, so I wondered what purpose you would as ascribe to the paintings of Alexander Ross. The whole complicated process, what, is his, what do you see as his uh, aim, his purpose, his point of view in doing all this? I don't think we really um, necessarily, I don't, I don't recall uh, presumptions about the intentions of the other three artists, um, but uh, we could ponder that if we wanted. Is there a synonym for purpose that you can use? I just don't understand what you mean. No, let's see. Uh, you gave, uh, you analyzed the reasons for the uh, visual appearance of each of the other artists, and I wonder if you have any ideas about the reasons that go into what he's doing, his motivations. What's he trying, what is his, uh, what is he trying to communicate to the viewer? I think, I think that might be an instance of what's called the intentional fallacy. We, we have these things and they're in front of us. They have an effect on us and they prompt thoughts from us about how they may have been made. Now, you know, are we to go and interview Alex Ross and say, come on, Alex, what are you really trying to say? That would be to suggest that he hasn't said it. So, I mean... Um, when a painting leaves you cold, it's because you, it's because you, you can't get a grip on that question and, and to the extent that I don't know how to uh, I don't know how to appreciate Alex Ross's big paintings the small ones yes but the big ones I I, I, don't, I can't meet them halfway as much as I try so therefore I, I don't know what, what his purpose is I assume his purpose is that he, he wants to be engaged in making these things and have us look at them um, Another, anyone else on Ross? Uh, it'd be great to have some more uh, uh, comments, if there are some. Uh, people are burning to say something. Otherwise, uh, yes, a lady here, thank you. If you could wait for the mic. The only other time I've seen his work was at the Whitney, and I think then I had more the impression of something monstrous and something fallen. And the fallen aspect related to other work I see out there, especially from a young generation of artists where there's this fallen, uh, dark aspect. And so I, t I think maybe I took it as cultural commentary as well. But in this show, um, I don't find that aspect. And, and it's prettier in a way. You know, the prettier, it gets, it gets a little bit too pretty, even though there's this unusual, you know, green thing that's happening. Um, so, it, so it takes, you know, the cultural commentary has kind of gone away from me, that sense of, you know. Okay. Like a dystopian <laughs> kind of sense, do you mean when you say fallen? Yeah. yeah. Lady in the, here, uh, can we have the mic in the third row? That'd be great. Is it too late to compare and contrast the Japanese artists um, how about emo? Yes, uh, with the one at the Brooklyn Museum, with all the 
the two floors that the Brooklyn Museum is devoted to, this anime stuff. Marikimo. Yeah, I think it probably is a little late for that, but it's a good thought to take away with and to um, uh, ponder on the on the. Uh, You're talking the about Murakami. F Murakami. We can ponder it on the uh, the subway from uh, Chelsea to Brooklyn, and on that note of travel, thank you. And just remind you that on May the 11th we have. Uh, the final review panel of the series. Um, is it, sorry? April. Uh, May the 9th. May the 9th. Friday, May the 9th. Carly Berrick, Peter Plagans, and uh, Christian Vivras Fawn will join me for a Whitney Biennial review panel special. Thank you. Thank you.